lately. Us, we adults need to get our act together, really, because uh, we are seeing uh, kids hear from the Lord. Um, we, we're seeing teenagers give their lives to Jesus. Um, just really good stuff with our kids. So I'm really encouraged by that. This morning we're going to begin a series studying the church in Ephesus. That is bigger than the book of Ephesians. If you, raise your hand if you've heard of the book of Ephesians somewhere. Okay, it's in the New Testament. It's a, an epistle of Paul. We will not just be looking at the book of Ephesians, although we will be looking at that. But we're going to study this church in Ephesus, which begins in Acts chapter, chapters 18 and 19. So there's two chapters in Acts that touch on this church. Then there's an entire, entire epistle of Paul called Ephesians. Then First and Second Timothy are written to Timothy, who's the pastor of that church. And then there's a letter to the church in Ephesus in the beginning of the book of Revelation. So we will be in five different books, and this is probably going to take almost a year. I'm, I mean, like today's sermon, it's probably going to take almost a year. Just Oh, thank you, Tanya. All right. Tanya gets the gold star today. Um, so we're going to look at the church in Ephesus. Now, before we do that, we've got to just like uh, get our minds wrapped around this. I, am I the only one who hears all these ancient city names? And I'm like, I don't know where Corinth is. I don't know what Ephesus is. What, what's an Antioch? Am I the only one that gets lost? When we, okay, three of you are honest. The rest of you are dirty liars, all right? <laughs> listen, when people start, when I listen to a sermon, and they're like, oh, you know, when Paul went from Corinth to Antioch, it was not an easy trip. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it was. I don't, you know, I don't know how far away those places are from each other and stuff like that. So, the reason that it's so difficult to wrap our head around ancient Mediterranean geography is because, uh, you know, most of us are not from this part of the world, although some of us are, and it's 2,000 years ago. So, aside from some people, most of us, you know, like, I, I can't, I can't go back and think, well, what was, you know, what was going on in Ephesus 2,000 years ago? That's, that's just a hard thing to wrap my head around no matter how much I like history. So I want to just give a really, really fast geography history lesson on Ephesus. This will probably be the only one you hear, but in order to get through this series on Ephesus, we have to understand a little bit. So this is a modern map of the globe. Okay, this is 2019 standard. This right here, just to orient us, is Northern Africa. This is Europe. Uh, this is Asia. Well, actually, this is the Middle East. So we, we would call this area here Asia Minor, okay? Now, this is something that's, you know, sometimes we don't think about or don't even realize. The middle, like, this is uh, Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, uh, Saudi Arabia, into Iran. We think of this as the Middle East, and that's correct. But sometimes, if I, if I were to ask someone what continent is Israel on, it's not Europe, it's Asia, right? Is Israel is actually technically on the continent of Asia. So by modern standards, we have this, you know, we have Turkey right here. This, I know somebody just got hungry. All right. We have Turkey. Uh, Ephesus would be right where this red X is, which is uh, Western Turkey right on the Mediterranean Sea. 
And that's where Ephesus would be. Now, it's not called Ephesus anymore. Uh, it's not a big city anymore. Uh, the closest town in Turkey is called Izmir. But that's where Ephesus was. And Turkey is in this interesting place where it is kind of the transitional area between Europe, uh, Eastern Europe here, and Asia. So Turkey is a little bit, it's, it's a transitional place between Europe and Asia. Now, in the day of Paul, in the early church, it was pretty much just seen as Asia, okay? There were people from Rome. It was a, it was a very diverse city. Uh, Ephesus had about between 100,000 and 200,000 residents, which is big. That's about the size of Erie, Pennsylvania. But this is 2,000 years ago. So 2,000 years ago, that would be a very large city, 100,000 to 200,000 people. It was also a wealthy city. There's a lot of money in Ephesus. Uh, there was a lot of uh, um, activity, economic activity. Uh, the governor of the province lived there, and it had a large Jewish population as well. So um, Ephesus was the most prominent city in its province, but it was not the capital. It had a lot of money, had a lot of people. It was diverse. A modern-day example of that for us might be something like New York City. Like, if you were to say, well, what's the, what's the most prominent city, city in America? We probably would say New York, but New York is not the capital, right? Ephesus was like that. It was not the capital, but it was the most prominent. And it was full of business, and it was full of money, and it was full of people, and it was diverse. That's kind of like New York a little bit, right? Now, Ephesus was known, it had a reputation for being the home of the temple of a goddess named Artemis or Diana, depending on whether you're Greek or not. And I want to show a picture real quick. This is a map that I got uh, from Chico's wallet of Artemis of Ephesus. Okay, this is, uh, this is ancient Ephesus. This is uh, an artist's rendition of what it may have looked like. There's this body of water that came right into the city, and the city is built on this body of water. It's not there anymore. It's dried up. It's a swamp. If you went there today, it would be a swamp. Okay, uh, right here is a theater. A big, it's built into the side of a mountain. It would be you know, like a semicircle, a bunch of seats, and they would do shows and, and plays and things there. And actually, we'll get to the story in a few weeks, but in Acts chapter 19, a riot almost starts there, and they want to get all the, uh, kick all the evangelists, the Christian evangelists, out of the city because they were taking business away from the temple of Artemis right here on the outskirts of the city. Ephesus was known as the home of Artemis, and people worshipped Artemis, this goddess. And there was a huge business around making little statues, little idols of Artemis. And the Apostle Paul and some of his friends were so effective in sharing Jesus that they were running the idol makers out of business. And so the idol makers union organized, and they started, they really essentially started a riot, and that riot happened right in this little theater here. And we will get to that story uh, probably sometime this month. And we'll look at that. So that's a little bit about Ephesus. Um, I want you to think about, I want you to think about Ephesus the way an archaeologist would a little bit. I know this is kind of a hard thing to wrap your head around. It's hard to transport yourself 2,000 years and a couple thousand miles 
So let me illustrate it this way so that you can understand why this matters. I want you to think about a thousand years from now, 3019, if we make it that long. Think a thousand years from now what an archaeologist might find if they came and walked through ancient Wissanome or ancient Philadelphia, right? Like, let's say someone is exploring and excavating Philadelphia a thousand years from now, and they go down, they're down in Center City, like Fifth and Market, and they find, oh, the ancient Philadelphians worshipped this bell, and the bell had a crack in it, and it's a mystery as to the origin of the crack, but they would gather around this bell, and people would come from far and wide to stare at this bell, but the bell was not affixed to a building, it just sat there, not ringing or doing anything, right? That's what, a thousand years from now, if they were digging up Fifth and Market and found the Liberty Bell, they'd be like, ah, ah, ah. was there a building here that it was attached to? Nope. <laughs> it's just people come and visit it, right? And then let's say that they head west on the, the ancient Ben Franklin Parkway, right? And they find this beautiful, it's a dilapidated building, but it's this, you know, this art museum used to be beautiful. The only thing standing now are the pillars. And there's a statue to a god named Rocky Balboa. <laughs> he was a god to the people of Philadelphia, and they had a statue. And uh, some say that he wasn't even a real person. Uh, but there's, there's debate, because Sylvester Stallone was a real person, and he's from Philadelphia, but Rocky was not a real person, and we don't know if this is a myth or a legend or a true story. And they would find, oh, we found an ancient scroll that has ancient Philadelphian poetry, and they would get their little magnifying glass out and read the Philadelphian poetry. West Philadelphia, born and raised. <laughs> On the playground is where I spent most of my days. And they would find out about the fresh prince who was the son of the king of Philadelphia. Right, you know, like that. <laughs> and was the fresh prince real or was he a myth? Well, we, he wasn't, some believe the fresh prince wasn't real, but Will Smith was real and he's from Philadelphia. And it would be this thing that they would debate and then they would go down to South Philly and they would find the sports complex where there are three coliseums dedicated to games of chance and sport, Right. And they would go, this is the football coliseum. And the football coliseum has a jail cell in it to keep people who have broken the law and put them in jail. And the, the hockey coliseum has a room dedicated to smashing things, a rage room. I don't know if you know this. This week, the Wells Fargo Center opened up a room for angry hockey fans to go smash things. Uh, it's $35 to get in, by the way. So, you know, the, the archaeologists would say, okay, the football coliseum has a jail cell and the hockey coliseum has a room dedicated to rage. So the people of Philadelphia had an anger problem. And that's what, a, that's what an archaeologist would discover if they went through Philadelphia. When archaeologists go through a place like Ephesus, they uncover temples to gods. They uncover theaters. They uncover marketplaces and things like that, and they get a glimpse of what life was like back then for them, and it helps us understand when we read the New Testament. Does that make sense? So Ephesus is a significant city, and as we get into the study on the church in Ephesus, we want to keep this stuff in mind that, listen, they didn't go into like this secular environment. There was a, there was a goddess in that town that people were worshiping. Uh, Ephesus was full of things like witchcraft and magic 
in the occult. It was not a secular environment. So a modern-day example of that in America would be something like New Orleans. New Orleans is not a secular city. You go to New Orleans, there's all sorts of spirituality, most of which is not biblical. But if you could take a little bit of New York City and a little bit of New Orleans and put them together, you would kind of have a modern-day example of Ephesus. So that's the city there. Now, the Apostle Paul lived in Ephesus for three years. During those three years, he wrote a letter to a church in Corinth that we call 1 Corinthians. He uh, served in the church in Ephesus, and he wrote the letter, letter to the Ephesians. He had, I think Ephesus was near and dear to Paul's heart because he spent more time in Ephesus than any other one location that he was ever in, unless he was in prison. Uh, he spent more time in Ephesus there. He wrote not one, but two letters to the pastor in Ephesus and a letter to the congregation in Ephesus. So Ephesus was a significant place for Paul. It says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. So I don't know if that's literal or a metaphor, but Paul wrestled in Ephesus. I mean, it was a struggle for him. He worked hard. Uh, he stood up to challenges, and he wrote 1 Corinthians while there. So that's a little bit about Ephesus. Now, I want to get into the actual story. This is Acts chapter 18. This is where the story of the church in Ephesus really begins. And I think the story we're looking at is like the genesis of this, the church in Ephesus. Like, like we celebrated last year, 10 years at Truvine. This would be like their anniversary story, or it would be part of that. This would be part of their anniversary story. So we're going to be in uh, Ephesus chapter 18. Just, uh, it's a relatively short passage today. All right. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he, Apollos, wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. So I want to take a few minutes to talk to you about Apollos and who he was and provide a little bit of a biographical sketch for him. And then I want to talk about this married couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Okay, so we're going to look at Apollos, then Aquila and Priscilla. Apollos, there's a lot going on underneath the surface here. Apollos was Jewish, but he was born in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, and he came to Ephesus. So there's three different cultures represented just in that one sentence. He's Jewish, which means his family, his people are from Israel, but he himself was born in Alexandria, which is in Egypt, which is on what continent? Oh, don't, don't guess. It's Africa. All right? I'm afraid someone's going to say, like, Europe or something like that. Okay. Alexandria is in Egypt in northern Africa. So this guy of Jewish descent was actually born in Africa, so he grew up in Africa. Alexandria was a big city. About a third of it was Jewish, despite the fact that it was in Africa. They had a huge, the greatest library in the world was in Alexandria. The Septuagint, if you know what that is, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, was written in, it was translated in Alexandria. Smart town, kind of like Harvard of Egypt, okay? He grew up there, but where is he now? He's in Ephesus. So he comes from a Jewish family, but was born and raised in northern Africa, 
but is now in Asia. This guy has crossed some cultural barriers, right? This, this guy is outside of his comfort zone. He might have experienced some culture shock. He's a smart guy. It says he, he's an eloquent man. He was mighty in the scriptures. What might it mean that he's mighty in the scriptures? Well, we know the New Testament hasn't been written yet. So what scriptures was he mighty in? The Old Testament. So he knew the prophets. He knew the law. He knew Moses. He, he knew Isaiah. He was mighty in the scriptures. He was Jewish, so he would grow up learning these scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And be, being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Okay, this is another interesting thing. It says he's instructed in the ways of the Lord. So when the New Testament says the Lord, it's referring to Jesus. Okay, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's instructed in the ways of Jesus, and it actually says he is teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. So Apollos knows Jesus. He's heard about Jesus. I'm not, I don't know if Apollos personally met Jesus. In fact, it's unlikely. But he heard somehow, some way about Jesus. But then it says this in verse 25, the last phrase, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. So this is kind of where Apollos stood theologically. Somehow, someway, Apollos, being Jewish, but living in Africa, but now coming to Asia, somehow he heard about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. John the Baptist came before Jesus and paved the way for Jesus. John the Baptist was the one that said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. So that was John the Baptist's main message. That's a summary of it. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And John the Baptist would even baptize people. And he would immerse them in water, often in the Jordan River. And that baptism was a baptism of repentance. And people were lining up for it. In fact, uh, Nate, who was here last week, Nate Howard talked about this a little bit. Who's the most famous person that John the Baptist ever baptized? Jesus. Correct. The answer is always Jesus, right? John the Baptist even baptized Jesus. So you might ask, well, why did Jesus need a baptism of repentance? Jesus didn't need a baptism of repentance. Jesus himself said, I do this as a sign of obedience and submission. So the reason Jesus went through it wasn't because he had repentance that he needed to make. It was just to go through the process that everyone else had to go through. So John the Baptist, is, he's immersing people in the Jordan River. This is a sign of repentance. You need to know that there is more than one kind of baptism in the Bible, okay? John's baptism was repentance. Jesus' baptism, the baptism we do in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is a baptism where we are personally identifying with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, let me really quickly show you this slide because I want to make sure we understand these different types of baptism, okay? The baptism of John is looking forward to the cross because John the Baptist happened, this is all before the crucifixion. It's looking forward to the cross. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which is defined in those passages I've listed there. It's people saying, get ready, get ready, get ready. The Messiah is coming. But the baptism of Jesus, or the baptism of, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is a baptism of personally identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is a baptism of faith in the completed work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. When John was baptizing, the work wasn't finished. 
So it's a different type of baptism. And frankly, we don't need to continue that. We need to continue the repentance. But the baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit can include and incorporate repentance. So Romans 6 is my favorite passage that explains baptism, although it's not the only passage. Does this make sense? That there are, there are multiple types of baptism. There were different types of Jewish baptism. So just because the Bible, the Bible talks about baptism here and baptism there, please don't lump those all together. Understand that there are different types. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a way of identifying with Jesus' death and resurrection. Here's the thing of, about Apollos. Even though he lived after Jesus, he had not heard about this yet. He only knew about this. So, when we say that he was acquainted only with the baptism of John, here's the thing about Apollos. He knew about John the Baptist. He even knew about Jesus, but somewhere he did not catch the whole story. He, and we don't know how much of the story he knew, we just knew he didn't know the whole story. So he was probably going around preaching like, there is a man, John the Baptist. He's a forerunner to the Lord. He's preaching, repent for the way, uh, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Be baptized as a symbol of your repentance. And John the Baptist is preaching about a man named Jesus who is, to, who is the Messiah, who does signs and wonders and miracles. The end. Except that's not the end. Apollos probably never got to the sacrificial death and crucifixion. Apollos probably never got to the resurrection. He certainly never got to Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It says that when he taught, he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So Apollos' problem was not that he was inaccurate. His problem is not that he was insincere. His problem is it was incomplete. I mean, the way he's preaching fervently, accurately, makes me think, his heart and his mind are fully engaged. He just has not heard the rest of the story. So, do you, do you follow this so far? Good guy, and you know what? Let's cut Apollos some slack. There was no Facebook. There was no internet. There was no news. This is happening potentially in a different part of the world than he was living in. So he's working with the best information that he has, and he's being a good, zealous disciple. For you and I to not have the entire story is an entirely different situation because we have access to all of this. So that's Apollos. He is zealous, he is accurate, but he is incomplete. If he was saved, he's barely saved. And if he's not saved, he's almost saved. I mean, he's just on the... The cusp where it's like, I don't know, man. I mean, you seem to know a lot and really care, but at the same time, you're missing the crucifixion. Well, we don't need to debate that because he lived in a unique period of time. Uh, and, and I've just, I have not found that there's a consensus about that. Uh, he was a very faithful and believing Jewish person in Jesus. He just did not know the whole story. So how does he get the whole story? Well, that's where this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, come in. We find out about Priscilla and Aquila uh, earlier in this chapter. They were a husband and a wife. The wife's name is Priscilla. The husband's name is Aquila. I wish all husbands and wives had rhyming names. That would be awesome. Okay, just a little thing, a uh, little tidbit. 
Most of the time in this culture, they would say the husband's name first and the wife's name second. The only time they don't do that is when the wife is more prominent. So old Priscilla here was a real boss, it seems like. Because almost every time that they're mentioned in the Bible, it's Priscilla the wife first and then Aquila the husband second. Priscilla was prominent in the church. She was probably better known, had a better reputation, potentially maybe even the more gifted teacher or leader of the two, but they worked as a couple. And in 1 Corinthians 16, we find out that Priscilla and Aquila hosted a church in their own home. And Paul, Paul encourages people to go find them and join that little house church, which is essentially Paul's way of saying, go to discipleship groups. Go to church in someone's house, right? I'm going to hit that one pretty hard later probably, but how did Priscilla and Aquila get to the point where they could take Apollos aside? Look, it says they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, here's a little biography of Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla and Aquila are Jewish, but they were living in Rome. Rome is part of what is now Italy. Got it? They're having spaghetti and matzo balls. No? I thought that was pretty funny. Okay. So they're Jew a Jewish couple, but they're living in Rome. The emperor of Rome is so tired of all the debate about whether Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, he actually kicks all the Jewish people out of town. He's like, get out of here. And I think it's about seven years all the Jewish people have to leave Rome because he's just so tired of the arguments. So because of that, Aquila and Priscilla have to find a new place to live. They go to Corinth where they meet uh, someone that has the same job as them. Priscilla and Aquila, their job was they made tents. You know who else is a famous tent maker in the Bible? Paul. So they're making tents, and they're Jewish, and they say, that dude's Jewish, and he makes tents. So they start working together. They essentially become co-workers. And we don't know exactly how this happened, but at some point in the process of working with Paul, Priscilla and Aquila put their faith in Jesus, which makes me think Paul was doing his thing, right? Which, can I just encourage the rest of you that go to work with co-workers every week, that that's what Paul did too? Paul went and worked with his hands and made tents and ran a business, and in the process, led people to Jesus. And then the people he led to Jesus, led other people to Jesus and started churches in their homes. So you have an incredible oppor ministry opportunity. Tomorrow morning, when you head out to work, you know, and, like, I, I only work one day a week, but the rest of you that work the rest of the week, that was a joke, too. Oh, my goodness. Rough crowd today. Okay. You can be like the Apostle Paul at work. You don't have to come to church to do that. You can have Priscilla's and Aquila's that come to Jesus through your work ministry. All right. So, Priscilla and Aquila join Paul on some of his missionary trips. They hit Ephesus, and Paul's like, I'm going to keep going, and they're like, we're going to stay here. So they plant down, they set roots down in Ephesus, and remember, there's no churches at this point, so they're just going to the synagogues. They're Jewish. They believe in Jesus. At this point, following Jesus is just, a, that is a, is a sect of Judaism. There's no Christian churches. So they're going to the synagogue on Friday or Saturday, and uh, people every now and then are talking about Jesus, but they're doing the Jesus thing probably at home and the Jewish thing in the synagogue. 
And one day they're in the synagogue, and this young buck named Apollos shows up. And he is powerful in the Jewish scriptures. And he starts to talk about the Jewish Messiah fulfilling the Jewish prophecies. And his name is Jesus. And I think Priscilla and Aquila were like, that's one of us. That guy also believes in Yeshua or Jesus. But he doesn't know the whole story. So they pull him aside and they say, listen, everything you said was accurate, right on. But have you heard? that the suffering servant, Jesus, was crucified? Did you hear that he was resurrected? Did you hear that the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost? Probably stuff that Apollos had not heard yet. And so they finished the story for him, and then we find that uh, Apollos actually left, and he went to another city, and he encouraged, uh, he was encouraged to write to the disciples and welcome him, and he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. So Apollos, uh, sorry, Aquila and Priscilla actually poured into the life of Apollos in a way that made him more effective as they went on to the next phase. Aquila, Aquila and Priscilla need to get a little more credit, I think, nowadays. They're, they're often unheard of, but here they are. They are partners with the Apostle Paul. They're mentors to Apollos. They have a church in their home. These are, these are like, this is a an exemplary couple. And many of us could be modern Aquila and Priscilla's uh, today. So I want to talk really quickly about Apollos. I I want to go back to Apollos. Apollos was accurate. He was zealous, but his theology was incomplete. He needed to upgrade his belief system. His his doctrine needed upgraded. And so uh, we have Apollos-type situations in the church today when people say something to the effect of, I have prayed the sinner's prayer, I've repented of my sin, I've asked for forgiveness, and I've made Jesus my personal Lord and Savior. All of that is accurate, it's all good, but that is not the whole story. There is way more to the gospel than the sinner's prayer, repeating a prayer that someone else gave you to do. There's way more to the gospel than making Jesus your personal Lord and Savior. What about sanctification? What about the filling of the Holy Spirit? What about serving and flowing in your gifts? What about spiritual warfare? What about, I mean, there's so much more. So while Apollos was accurate and sincere, He was incomplete, and I think sometimes we are accurate, and we're sincere, but we're still kind of stuck in this first phase, and we need to go further. Does that make sense? Now, there's actually a passage that says exactly that in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, but whoever wrote it saw that people were not moving past the initial step of repentance. They were doing repentance. He's for it. He's saying it's good, it's foundational, but it is elementary. Okay? So my son right now is in fourth grade, and he's learning elementary math. Okay? 
So right now we're doing rounding. How do you round up to the nearest hundred or round down to the nearest hundred? It's even a little too much for me sometimes. So we're doing that, and man, I just am so scared for the day when he get, brings home math homework, and it's not just numbers, but it's letters. Solve for X. Do you remember, I don't know about you. When I hit that day in like seventh grade, I was like, wait, there's letters in math? Oh, I thought that was like reading class. Why are we mixing numbers and letters? Uh, he's not going to ever figure out like algebra or calculus if he can't do addition and subtraction, right? Repentance is the addition and subtraction of the gospel. It's foundational. You cannot have Christianity without repentance. But there is more to Christianity than I repent of my sins, right? There's more to saying I was wrong. That is an elementary, it's, it's foundational, it's essential, but look what the author of Hebrews says. He says, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. He wants to, he wants to leave the elementary teaching, not, not forsake it, not give it up, just build on it and move on. Does that make sense? So here's the thing. We're, we're always going to have to call people to repentance. We're always going to have to repent ourselves. But when we do that, let's not stop at repentance. Let's also invite people into maturity. You understand? Let's invite people into fullness. Instead of just saying, you need to repent, let's say, you need to repent and come on with this. Grow up into maturity. Develop. Be discipled. That's essentially what Apollos experienced, right? So we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but whoever it was must have been really familiar with the Old Testament. Because the book of Hebrews is just like, this is where Jesus is in the tabernacle. This is where Jesus is in the sacrificial system. This is where Jesus is in the Levitical priesthood. It, chapter 11 is just lists of uh, Old Testament saints. So whoever it was must have been mighty in the scriptures. <gasps> and whoever it was must have understood that the need to move from repentance forward, right? So I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but the two most likely candidates are Barnabas or Apollos. And, it's, and I'm not going to like, you don't have to believe it was Apollos when you go home today. It might have been Apollos, I don't know. Certainly someone wrote it that knew what they were talking about. Now, I want to ask you who you relate to in this story today. Do you relate more to Apollos or to Aquila and Priscilla? If you relate to Apollos, you might say, yeah, listen, I believe what I believe. I know something about Jesus. I believe in Jesus with all my heart, but I don't get all of this stuff. I do not understand anything beyond the basics. If that's you and you're in Apollos' boat today, I have good news for you because some of us are being called to be Aquila and Priscilla's, to come alongside, to pull you off to the side, maybe even invite you into the church that meets in our home and begin to disciple you and share the rest of the story with you. So if you're in Apollos, if you're kind of like, listen, I'm genuine, I'm sincere, and I know that the basics of what I believe but I know that there's more. You have to connect with the Aquilas and the Priscillas of your life. You have to find the people that are going to 
bring you alongside, most likely in a relationship, a friendship, and learn from them. Please don't just learn a couple random Christian Bible facts and think that's the full experience of following Jesus. There is so much more. We're talking about an infinite God that you will never exhaust. You'll never not have more to discover about Jesus. There will always be more to discover. So if you're an Apollos, I want to encourage you, go deeper with that. Now, some of you might feel like what God is saying to you is, I want to be an Aquila and a Priscilla. Someone who, I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. I, you know, I have not finished this. I am not perfect. I have not figured all of it out. But I have enough that I can help someone else. I can begin to teach, right? And that's something that Paul and other New Testament authors would hit on consistently, by now you ought to be teaching, right? So if God is saying to you, and you relate to Aquila and Priscilla today, find opportunities to bring young, genuine, sincere, new believers along. Invite them into your life. Even if you can't invite them to your home, invite them into your life. Take them under your your wing and begin to, to develop and disciple them and to teach them the full picture of the gospel. Does that make sense? So you may be relating to Apollos today. You may be relating to Aquila and Priscilla today. In any event, uh, you have an opportunity to respond. And this, as it did here, happens primarily in the context of relationships, okay? All right, so this morning I just want to ask you to stand and I want to close in prayer and uh, ask for the Holy Spirit to empower us to do this. We don't want to do this in our own strength. Lord, uh, it seems like there are modern-day Apolloses among us, those who are sincere and accurate in their belief but need to learn more. There are also modern-day Aquila and Priscilla's, those who could take others under their wings and explain the full picture of the gospel, explain more about the kingdom, explain more about Jesus. I pray that you would connect those two groups of people so that we, as it says in Hebrews 6, can move on into maturity. That we would not get stuck in the elementary, but that we would begin to touch base with the algebras of Christianity, the calculus of Christianity, the, the deeper and higher principles of the Christian life, that we would begin to understand a biblical worldview and how that affects things like spiritual warfare. How the lordship of Jesus Christ affects our finances, and our sexuality, and our family. What your word clearly teaches about your return and your coming, Lord. So many principles that we could grab onto if you would lead us into maturity, and I pray that you would empower us by the Holy Spirit to do that. I ask that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thank you.